You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. morning, everybody, and good afternoon if you're joining us from South Asia. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to an, a great discussion we have today with a world-renowned journalist, actually two world-renowned journalists, um, a great conversation today between Declan Walsh and Cyril Almeida. My name is Thamana Salikuddin. I'm Director for South Asia Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, USIP is a national nonpartisan independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. Today, I'd like to introduce uh, both our, our um, discussants here. Declan Walsh is, uh, I'm sure, no stranger to all of you. He's one of the New York Times' most distinguished international correspondents. And his new book, The Nine Lives of Pakistan, is an electrifying portrait of Pakistan over a tumultuous decade that captures the sweeping um, images of different individuals in this strange, wondrous, and benighted country. Um, and we're very excited that Cyril Almeida, who is also in his own right uh, a celebrated journalist and a visiting senior expert with the Asia Center at USIP, will be discussing the book. Interestingly enough, Cyril actually features in Declan's book. And um, I remember I was actually in Lahore during the 2013 elections, the night that Declan was actually asked to leave Pakistan. And I remember getting calls from Cyril and other friends who were very concerned. So I'm very interested to hear the behind the scenes stories of what happened then and throughout Declan's time in Pakistan. Uh, since his departure, you know, he has served as the Cairo bureau chief and currently is the chief Africa correspondent for the New York Times based out of Kenya. Um, he has worked all over, um, you know, the Middle East and South Asia, but he spent many years in Pakistan covering uh, a very tumultuous period and learning about the different parts of the country that sometimes mystify outsiders. So this book is really an intimate and complex look at the different parts of Pakistan that are vying for maybe supremacy. And I don't want to take too much time, uh, but Cyril and, uh, and Declan, I welcome you all to discuss the book, but really just tell us you know, what is it about Pakistan that keeps drawing us back and keeps perplexing us at times? And why is it that Pakistan remains so vital to US national security interests and our foreign policy objectives in the region? Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Cyril and Declan. Just to note, if you are watching this on our USIP website, you can ask questions in the chat box. You can also follow along um, with the Twitter hashtag that's there. Thank you. Thanks, Tamanna. Uh, hi, Jacqueline. Hello, everyone. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Um, it's, it's a happy day for me to be uh, here chatting with Declan, a dear friend of mine. And also, you know, sort of, as you mentioned, our stories have been entwined a little bit over the years and, you know, wish Declan best of luck for his book. I have the American version right here. Um, you know, so, Tamanna, you were mentioning uh, about the last night that Declan had in Pakistan and um, I, I hadn't publicly talked about this before, but since Declan has mentioned it in his book, 
uh, we had actually been scheduled to travel down to Lahore together because that was election weekend in Pakistan, May 2013. And of course, we couldn't travel down the motorway because Declan suddenly got his orders overnight. And so when I got to Lahore, um, obviously just busy with election coverage, meeting people, et cetera. So I didn't really have a chance to check in with Declan until after sort of filing my story on election night. And I went across to his hotel, a uh, hotel well-known to everyone in Lahore, and uh, was late, probably one, half one in the morning. And going inside, you know, you get a sense that maybe there's some kind of VIP guest out here, because you can see security personnel stationed inside the hotel and outside. And so then I pressed the lift. I got to Declan's room, the room he told me, and I'm like, oh, wait, uh, looks like Declan's living next to the VIP visitor. Turned out it was him. And I didn't get much time to speak to him uh, because they kept knocking on the door and asked me to leave. And so I thought I, it was a decision I made right there. I was like, look, uh, you know, he's a dear friend and I think he's a friend of Pakistan's too. It's very sad what's happening here. So I, I offered to drive him to the airport. Um, I think probably three or four in the morning. And I haven't told Declan this, but when I did that, uh, I, I went away for a little while and fortified myself. I made a few phone calls to a few friends and I said, you know, it's been a long day and a long weekend for all of us, but if you get a call from me in the middle of the night, please pick up. <laughs> and that's how we went off to the airport. So, well, Declan, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being here. I think what we're going to do, um, you know, many, many people are keen to hear from you. So uh, what I'm going to try and do is like maybe open up with some comments about your book and what you were trying to get across in this book. And then maybe we'll just have a few questions back and forth between us. And then, as, you know, I, I encourage people to uh, ask questions in the chat box because I know Declan's keen on hearing from them and maybe that will just help and aid our conversation along. So um, over to you, Declan. Tell us about your book. Tell us about your stint in Pakistan. Tell us what it means for you having this US edition out. Hey, Cyril, thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be at the USIP um, just after the launch of the book. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to uh, have this chat with you. And thank you for taking us down uh, from that night in 2013 when we had a uh, at this uh, flashing lights escort to the airport in Lahore. And you, uh, you uh, very graciously provided a, an unusual taxi service uh, for an unusual flight. Um, I, I just want to start off by speaking just very briefly a little bit about the book, its background, um, uh, for people who might be interested, just to sort of give a sense of where, where I'm coming out with The Nine Lives of Pakistan. Um, the, the book is mostly, it sort of zooms in on this incredibly combustible period in Pakistan's recent history starts with when I arrived in 2004, but really the narrative takes off from about 2007 um, with the protests that, the street protests that started against Pervez Musharraf. And of course, you remember from that period on, from that moment, and particularly, I, I think about the, um, you know, the, 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 the defiance of the then Chief Justice Iftikhar Muhammad Chowdhury, who was called President Musharraf, then President Musharraf's officer, is home to get his marching orders and he refused to go. That was the starting gun, in a way, for this dizzying chain of events that really went on for years in Pakistan. There was the protests against Musharraf, uh, there was the Red Mosque siege, there was the return of Benazir Bhutto, her assassination, uh, the Taliban insurgency, so many violent events 
across the country in the tribal belt. Um, and then, of course, the um, American operation uh, to, against Osama bin Laden in 2011 that I think in many ways was a, a turning point for the country as well. And I guess we're going to talk about that. Um, so my, my story is framed around, obviously, around nine people uh, who lived through that period, or rather eight people and, and Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And you know, these are these are nine people who have very strong, compelling stories. There are people who I knew in the country, um, but it also, you know, through their lives, I'm telling, recounting those events through that time. But the idea is also to really use that as a frame to give a much broader look at the country. Um, you know, reach back in the history all the way back to partition in 1947 to look for the root causes of some of the things we saw erupting at that time. Um, also to kind of get at some of these abiding truths about Pakistan that applied in that period, but also could apply in any other period, including this one now. So, I, you know, crisis about religion, the role between the military and civilians, and um, all of that sort of good stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit here. When I sat down to write, had already been written about Pakistan before that Gulf Wars. Ahmed Rashid has written numerous books. Anatole even wrote a broad book about the country. Um, uh, and then there have been specialist books as well, of course, on militancy and so many other things. So I knew that there was already a crowded field. But what I was aiming for really was to try and write a book that would appeal to a somewhat broader audience, not necessarily speaking to the Pakistan specialists. And I'm sure there's hopefully some or many on this many of you on this call or on this on this chat um but really to you know to get to to try and appeal to a reader who knew something about pakistan probably had followed it in the news um had an active curiosity but was really probably as perplexed about what makes this place tick how do all of these contradictions make any sort of sense about pakistan um this in in the same way that I had. Um, and, you know, one influence I definitely had right at the start was Emma Duncan's book. Uh, she was an economist uh, correspondent who had been in Pakistan, I think from the late 80s on. Uh, her book is called Breaking the Curfew, and it starts with Zia's funeral in 1988, or 87, 88. Um, and, you know, that, and, that, and, that, and that really kind of, you know, got me thinking about at least an approach um, the book was originally called, my book was originally called Inshallah Nation, uh, which was a title I was very fond of. And then as some of the publishers decide, uh, you know, the public might struggle with, you know, it, it kind of this idea, a theme that I think is still in, uh, you know, obviously religion plays a role, but also you know, fate, the role of fate and how much people are trying to control their own destiny. And these were ideas that, that really interest me. Um, when I started writing it, on that, on that note, actually, I did try, I mean, in my early drafts, I tried to write it in a thematic way. Um, but I, I quickly realized that wasn't super satisfactory. It felt a little dry. And I wasn't sure it was the best vehicle to really reach the kind of audience that I wanted to get to with the book. So. I, I then started to think about, you know, how I had learned about Pakistan, how I felt that I had really started to get under the skin of the country. Um, and I, I realized that a lot of the most 
the strongest lessons that had stuck with me were really through encounters with people, often not with the big name personalities, you know, the Musharrafs or even the Benaziers or these people, but kind of like the second tier, if you like, personalities of mostly of public life, not all of public life, but often of public life. So, you know, politicians further down the rung, police chiefs, people in the ISI or the military. And those, it was really in my encounters with those people, people who would, you know, invite me into their homes, have a drink, let me ride along with them, give me really this kind of incredible degree of access to their lives. And, you know, I would socialize with them and so on. And it was that kind of ingress into these really dramatic lives that uh, got me thinking, this is how I learned about the country. And this might also be a good framework to try and explain it to, to other people. Um, and, and I think we'll probably come back to this, but, you know, this, this idea about, I mean, there are many reasons for me why Pakistan is such a special place. It's a, you know, it's an infuriating and complex, and at the time we were there, often frightening place to be, but also uh, a place that I met so many inspiring people, and also a place where, as a reporter, I had um, an incredible degree of access. I mean, reporters would come across from India to cover Pakistan, and they would you know, complain about how you couldn't get a minister to speak to you, or you're really shut out from government, or all of these are, uh, or, you know, their access in some degree was restricted. In Pakistan, I would have ministers, and it wasn't just me, other reporters, ministers would return my calls at midnight, or, you know, uh, even when you would go to the most faraway places, you know, the basic impulse of people I met was to, was to talk and to share, and they, and they, and they, and they shared these lives that were dramatic and quirky and and telling, and that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm hoping I'm getting across here. Um, the other aspect in the book is that uh, as well as telling these stories and trying to explore some of these broader themes that hopefully will resonate now as much as they'll resonate with the telling of what happened back then in, the, in that period, um, is also there's a, a little mystery which Cyril gets to in, in, in his introduction. Um, as Cyril said, it was about three days before the election in 2013, when this uh, group of a, a police jeep turned up at my gate at midnight with a, 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 a plainclothes man in the front, and he handed me this letter, and this letter said, your visa is uh, cancelled forthwith, uh, and you have 20, 72 hours to leave the country. Um, and the explanation that was given was simply on account of your undesirable activities. So there was no explanation for what those undesirable activities were. And once I left the country, it started off this uh, you know, process for me trying to figure out why. And I'm happy to talk about that in, in greater detail later. It's in the book as well. But um, you know, there was this mystery of what, why was I kicked out from Pakistan? And I went on this sort of circuitous journey to find some sort of an answer to that. And in a way, I think anyway, the answer that I came to wasn't just about me, but also reveals a little bit more about how the country works. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it, it was a it was an abiding question for many of us why that happened. And in many ways, your exit from Pakistan triggered this new phase of uh, media repression in Pakistan we've seen ever since. And of course, you mentioned Hamid Mir's attack in 2014 in the book, etc. Um, we'll just circle back to that. I, I think what I'd like to start with, and you know, sort of because 
as you mentioned, a lot of these books on Pakistan is basically Pakistan 101. This is Pakistan. These are, they have nuclear weapons, they have militants, they have et cetera. And you chose this different tack of uh, you know, sort of writing the story through the story of these individuals. And I think um, you mentioned enduring truths in your opening. And I, I just, one thing that struck me reading your book, um, you know, sort of you have uh, Abdul Rashid Ghazi, the bad guy, you know, sort of from the early 2000s or mid 2000s, the Lal Majid character. And fast forward, you know, um, seven, eight, nine years, and you have Khadim Rizvi sort of laying siege to Islamabad, you know, something that Abdul Rashid Ghazi and his counterparts couldn't have even imagined to uh, doing. So, um, so you see these recurring sort of characters, I mean, sort of rooted in the same kind of thought process, as it were. Um, and then you have uh, the counterpoint, someone like the iconic figure who is Asma Jangir, you know, so like a titan in her field, beloved by many Pakistanis and her losses felt by many even today. I guess like, you know, sort of just in the context of the book and, and sort of the characters that you've talked to in Pakistan, um, for every Abdul Rashid Ghazi, or, you know, I mean, rather for every Asma Jangir, and I know it's not possible to compare her to many other people, but you see far more on the other side, the bad guys, the bad characters, etc. I was wondering, and, and you know, you have a sensitivity to Pakistan, and that's why I maintain you're a great friend of Pakistan. But if you could talk a little bit about sort of, you know, Khadam Rizwi's, Abdul Rashid Ghazi's occurring and coming through the, into sort of the uh, public discourse in Pakistan in a much bigger way than your average, and there is no average Asma Jangir, but your average human rights campaigner, for example, might. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about sort of why that may be the case. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, certainly the period I was there and even now, these people, the Abdur Rashid Ghazis were the people who were, in simple terms, driving the narrative about the country that was seen from the outside, right? The, 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 the siege of the Red Mosque in 2007 was this incredibly dramatic event, not just because it, you know, transformed Islamabad, which was this city that up until then people made jokes about how sleepy it was. And now, you know, it's, an, it's the siege of, it's the, it's the scene for this kind of Waco style siege uh, with, you know, uh, helicopters bombing a mosque in the middle of the city, you know, just down the street from the ISI headquarters in Apara. So, you know, the, the, the symbolism is rich. Um, you know, the characters, the, the, these uh, very, up until the start of the siege, very media friendly, uh, clerics who were trying to get across their message. And so, you know, I, I guess certainly during that period, these were the people who were driving, were really, I think, at the cool face, at the cutting edge of this, you know, perfect storm of elements that were coming together at, all at once. And I think really unexpectedly for people, you know, it seems to me that when I look back at it now, 9-11 and what, you know, the American military deployment in Afghanistan, you know, it, 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 it had so many second order effects in Pakistan that really, you know, changed the dynamic inside the country. And if just to lay out the most simple of them, it precipitated the this probably inevitable clash between the military and the security services and the groups they had been coddling for years. And there was clearly, you know, there was a divergence between these two groups that that was strained to breaking point after 2001, when Musharraf sends, you know, uh, uh, Pakistani uh, soldiers to the tribal belts to go after Al Qaeda. They end up being sucked into this war, 
war against Al-Qaeda and local militant groups in Waziristan, and suddenly then that explodes into the rest of the country. So, you know, I think, I think that's why those figures are, are, are the people. The, the other reason, though, I think is it's to do with the role of the state. Um, you know, in every society, and, you know, the US, uh, I don't need to point out obvious comparisons, but, um, you know, in every society, there are uh, extremists on all fringes, on the left and on the right. Um, but, you know, in, in, in Pakistan and I, arguably in India these days, what is striking is that, you know, the state is, is, is or has, at least in the past, at times abdicated its responsibility to act as a neutral arbiter in these in these in these in these fights that play out i mean in pakistan of course it's a more dramatic story because you know of the role of us the, the the place of islam in the functioning of politics all that sort of stuff has been unsettled or undecided for years but um but but i do think that you know, you saw with the emergence of these groups like the Red Mosque and more recently with Khadam Rizvi and the instrumentalization of the blasphemy laws and so on, these things really show you that the state still is not acting as a neutral arbiter to try and, um, you know, impose, have a, have a monopoly on the use of force and impose basic rules for a functioning democracy and for a healthy body politic. And I, I think that is one of the defining features of, of, of the Pakistani state, actually, that, that unfortunately really, you know, came to the fore during the period I was there and still seems to be the problem now. Yeah, I, I like that what you just said about the neutral arbiter and the state not being there. I think that, that tends to explain a lot of why you see this sort of disproportionate uh, certain kind of characters appearing time and again. Um, the questions have already started rolling in, Declan, as I expected, but... Um, I'm going to ask you a couple, and this is one really interesting one about enforced disappearances. Um, but I'm going to ask you a little bit, this is, you know, a day after your uh, U.S. Cop, uh, version of the book has dropped, uh, you know, the Pak-U.S. relationship, as you said, since 9-11 has been defined, uh, you know, it's been a tumultuous uh, relationship for many years. And you were there sort of the peak or the troughs, rather, um, you know, post-Osama. But um, uh, sort of, the, the relationship as it stands today, and I know you've been gone from Pakistan for a number of years, but somebody continues to watch the country. Um, the Pak-U.S. relationship, have these guys figured it out yet? Have these two states? I mean, you know, Pakistan's always had a litany of complaints, and the U.S. has its own litany of complaints and grievances, et cetera, the back and forth. Is this a strategic relationship? Is it a transactional relationship? And then, of course, you know, sort of then over the last few years with the current administration, maybe there was sort of, you know, uh, seen perhaps more than they've had in the past, I do I on Afghanistan, what should be done. But I just want to, um, you know, sort of get your input on the Pak-U.S. relationship. Uh, what we see right now, what is it? And do you think is this a sustainable proposition? Well, I, I always had the impression that, you know, as you say, uh, in, in the book, I say it's a bit like a, I mean, it's not an original thought, but it's like a, a, a very bad forced marriage over the years. And really after 9-11, it became clear that, you know, the US and Pakistan at times have had shared interests, but did not always have shared values. Um, and in, the, in that negotiation that went on or goes on between the countries, I often thought that even though the Pakistanis complained a lot, you know, because they often seemed, I felt, to get the better of the Americans and what they were trying to get out of get out of the relationship. I think that probably changed after 
Osama when it really brought things to a head. But there was a long period where Pakistan was getting a lot of money and playing double games on the border and in Balochistan and, and, and so on. Um, but, you know, looking at it from, as you say, I'm not following it day to day at the moment, but looking at it from, you know, from a distance still following, it seems to me that, you know, what, what's really changed, of course, is the China equation, uh, you know, the, the arrival of China and Pakistan in a big way. And I'm told that uh, in Islamabad and in many cities, there is a, a Chinese presence that, you know, in the past just wasn't there when I was in Islamabad. As you know, I mean, the main Chinese present was, presence were restaurants where you could go and get a beer in the evening um, and maybe a few massage parlors that ended up getting caught up in the Red Mosque, um, but that was it. So, um, you know, the, the, you, you have the Chinese aspect. And then, of course, the other thing is you have the relationship with India that's so changed. And, uh, you know, you, you see this, uh, you know, triangular uh, struggle that, of course, has always been there between Pakistan, India and China, but really taking on new dimensions now. And then the Trump administration, frankly, seemed to have pretty much given up on Pakistan the last number of years, other than to, you know, create a space or given up on creating a meaningful relationship with Pakistan, other than uh, the space that Pakistan, you know, occupied in the in the Taliban in the in the Taliban talks in Afghanistan, um, and right now when I look at that, on the one hand it looks like Pakistan is um, you know has certainly changed its image. It's no longer seen as the kind of provocateur in Afghanistan. It's seen as now an ally for the U.S. But I also, as you know, you see these Taliban talks in serious jeopardy, a lot of violence. And I guess my question, and I don't have an answer to this, my question is what happens if this Afghan process, God forbid, collapses and you do have a, a new type of war in Afghanistan or you do have the Taliban coming to power again in some, you know, in some way that is not negotiated? I just wonder where Pakistan will be at at that point. I, I don't have an answer to that, but it seems to me that even in this new phase of the relationship over the talks with the Taliban in Afghanistan, you know, where that is leading for Pakistan uh, is not clear. And, you know, I'm not sure Pakistan is entirely the master of its own destiny either. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned China and India. And I did want to come to that because exactly those are the two. So the rise of Modi and, and CPEC and the Belt and Road Initiative since, since you've been gone from Pakistan. These are the new sort of uh, big uh, factors in sort of how Pakistan is perceived outside and how it must interact. But uh, before getting to that, I, I'm, I'm going to like uh, flag a question from former ambassador Cameron Munter, former ambassador of Pakistan. And he says, uh, Declan, you said that the bin Laden raid was a turning point for Pakistan. Can you elaborate what you mean on that? Well, uh, I, I, you know, I think really this is probably a question Cameron Munter should be answering um, as he was a, you know, a witness and participant to many of the things that went on during that period. But, you know, it, it brought to a head, of course, these questions about where Pakistan stood in relation to uh, certain Islamic groups. Of course, there's, you know, then and still now there was this lingering suspicion that Pakistan or parts of the security services were, were harboring Osama bin Laden or somehow had been helping him. Um, you know, I, I got to say, for the record, I, I'm not sure that I have a clear answer on that, and I'm not sure anybody does. And it always struck me that if there was clear evidence that the US had that Pakistanis had been supporting Osama bin Laden, apart from anything else, I just find it hard to believe that it would not have leaked from DC at some point by now. Um, so 
anyway, for, for what it's worth, that's where I stand on that issue. Um, otherwise, though, I think, you know, it was clear that the bin Laden raid, you know, set, set in motion a number of minor crises and then bigger crises uh, for for the army and its relationship with America, it it was so humiliated. Um, it was such a blow to the prestige of the army. Uh, not only you know this question about how Osama happened to be in an Abbottabad, but also, of course, from a Pakistani perspective, how an American team of multiple helicopters had stole across the border from Afghanistan, carried out this raid, and returned completely unmolested to Afghanistan. So, you know, there, there were all of these questions that it raised. And, you know, to my mind, actually, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, you know, it, it became clear to me when I look back, as you said, what happened to me was in the bigger scheme of things for Pakistani media, a very small event, but it did seem to be the start of, or at the start, at the least, of a period of media oppression that still still goes on now. And I think that, you know, the, the, the humiliation of the bin Laden raid, the impact that that had on the image of the military inside the country really made the military take stock and combine effort that they made against the Pakistani Taliban from, you know, 2014 on. We all, I think you also saw them um, uh, uh, really making a concerted effort to sort of reclaim the narrative inside the country as well. You know, there, there have been so much incredible criticism after the bin Laden raid. I mean, Asma Jangir, who of course features in the book, she, you know, she's going on TV calling generals useless duffers, mocking them. There were uh, parliamentary hearings where the head of the ISI was being pilloried. Um, you had General Kiani, the, the chief of army staff, who did a tour of military bases in the country to try and quell discontent from young officers who were incredibly mm -hmm. angry and frustrated or confused about what had happened. So, you know, I, I think in that sense, the second order effects of the bin Laden raid were also that it yeah. really, you know, forced the Pakistani military to um, try and, you know, come back from this period where they had, you know, they'd had a Pervez Musharraf had been in power and then humiliatingly pushed out. You had the death of Benazir Bhutto and all of the noise around that, all of the implications around that. Um, then you had the humiliation of bin Laden. And you know, all of these things come together, really, it seemed to me, put this, uh, were really heavy blow to the prestige of the military inside the country. And, yeah. you know, to put things bluntly, the Pakistani military has not been very successful in fighting conventional wars, at least. Um, but it has really, what's extremely important for it is to maintain its prestige in the eyes of Pakistanis. And I think when we when we look at the media crackdown since then, you know, to my mind anyway, and I'd be curious to hear what you think, to my mind, that crackdown, um, you know, in large part has been dictated by the army's need, the military's need to, to, to reassert itself and to take control of the narrative about where Pakistan's going. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, um, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that about sort of how the, the principal contradiction uh, with the Abtabad raid and, and the killing of Osama the, the outside world, the Western world asked of Pakistan, how is this man here in Pakistan? And inside Pakistan, the principal question was, as you mentioned, how were the Americans able to come into Pakistan and militarily strike? And I think because the helicopter crashed on site in Abdabad, um, that was, you know, you could no longer deny it. Otherwise you could say it was something else or whatever. 
Um, but the crashed helicopter left physical evidence behind. And after that, you know, there was this great rage inside Pakistan. And so I think maybe that that does go to the sort of the principal contradiction, I think, about, you know, here it is the world's most wanted terrorist. And the world's question of Pakistan is the polar opposite, or it's the it's the opposite of what Pakistanis are asking themselves. And I, I don't think we've ever really sort of uh, been able to sort of answer that satisfactorily. And and to your point, I think uh, President Obama's um, memoir, part one of his new memoirs out, and he mentions it. I've seen a couple of excerpts from it. Um, with the raid itself, I, I think the question mark really for, for journalists inside Pakistan, for some of us, was like, you know, if it had been three months, six months, nine months that he had been there, eh, you know, you've been in Pakistan long enough, everything gets, you know, can slip through the cracks and mess was the, the duration and the sort of unchallenged, or as far as I understand, duration for which he was there in the same place that really raises questions about how was it possible to miss this? And I don't think, I mean, you know, ever since um, the Osama raid, there's this thing that's come up in Pakistan about, you know, is it complicity or was it incompetence? And often uh, the official uh, explanation always veers towards incompetence, never complicity. And I think, you know, there are some question marks, at least for some of us on that. Um, but yeah, um, I think sort of um, you, you flagged China and you flagged uh, some of the other things that have happened uh, since you've gone. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, when, when you were in Pakistan, China at that time, obviously dear friend, close friend of the Pakistani state, uh, deeper than oceans and stronger than steel, etc. We've heard all of that over the years. Um, but what I, what I wanted to get a sense of is now as Pakistan goes into a much deeper economic and, and sort of strategic relationship with China, CPEC, uh, you know, whatever security cooperation, etc. Um, from your time in Pakistan, um, what is your sense of like what underpins this relationship and what will propel it forward? Is is this again something which is destined towards some kind of uneasiness or conflict, or will it just go smoothly into an ever tighter embrace? I mean, I think there's inevitably got to be some friction points. One friction point that, again, from the outside has really struck me, but apparently it has not caught fire inside Pakistan, is the, is the issue of the Uyghurs. Um, it's just so strong. I mean, what a, what, a, what a contradiction. When you talk about contradictions, uh, you know, that there is a you know, Muslim minority that is suffering terrible repression just across Pakistan's border in the, Hindu, in, in the Himalayas. And, uh, you know, the, the prime minister of Pakistan has repeatedly claimed that he hasn't really properly read the reports about what's on there or he can't comment on it. Um, you know, I mean, of course, we know what that what the real politic of that is. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize that for what it is as well. But, you know, it's it's so striking that, uh, you know, for so many Pakistanis, ordinary Pakistanis, people hold dearly, uh, you know, the, 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 the case of the, the cause of the Palestinians or discrimination against Muslims in Kashmir or, of course, in India, uh, with good reason, obviously, in recent years. Uh, but, you know, the kind of the ability, the willingness to turn a blind eye to what's going on in China uh, with the Uyghurs is, is really striking. But having said that, it doesn't seem that that is a factor either way in, the, in, the, in this economic relationship and the strategic relationship, which has, which has grown and grown. And, of course, you know, the fighting between India and China on the border you know, only strengthens Pakistan's hand. Um, I, I will say, though, that I'm, uh, it's interesting to note that this is, in a way, 
you know, a development of something that, of course, has been going on for decades and decades. I was just reading, I've started reading Owen Bennett Jones's book on the Buttos, which, you know, goes through uh, Zulfkarali Bhutto's relationship with China in the 1960s when he was, you know, viewed by the US actually as a sort of Chinese, as a Maoist sympathizer. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it reminds you that, you know, of course, the scale of this relationship and uh, the the um, you know Pakistan, the, the way the, the the economic engagement that China has in Pakistan now is you know totally unlike anything that there has been before, but that this is a dynamic that has been there for a long time, this triangular dynamic between the three. And I guess you know again, I'm, we should probably the other the third leg of that, of course, is India, um, and you know it's it's hard to see actually how. Uh, there's any single bilateral relationship that drives this. It seems that there's always the third thing that is is a driving force as well. And I think, obviously, you know, the premiership of Narendra Modi and what's going on in India uh, is 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 a big factor in that as well. But it strikes me that the U.S. and I, you know, you'll be a better judge of this over the last number of years. But the U.S. really seems to have been. Uh, pushed out quite a lot actually as a significant force in Pakistan's foreign policy uh, be, with the with the you know growing strength with China yeah, yeah I mean um, the rise of China and its importance in Pakistan well, what's interesting I think perhaps from uh, which gets missed for uh, sometimes uh, uh, outside Pakistan is that there is an ease inside Pakistan too within for example the current government when it first came uh, to power in 2018. There were some comments about CPAC. Is this commercially viable for us? Are these loans and the terms on which they are conditions, are, are they good for Pakistan? I think those, those weren't just limited to the current government. I think there's definitely in sort of military circles too, that yes, there's a, there's a friendship here and there's a deep, and we, we need this because Pakistan is looking for, uh, particularly uh, CPAC essentially started out as, um, or has been predominantly about uh, power projects in the country, right? And fixing the, uh, power crisis that bedeviled the country for a decade. But I think this is, this, it's definitely an element of, um, from, you know, sort of the official line has been, you know, yes, this is all good, absolutely great, terrific for Pakistan, we want more of it. But quietly questions have been asked about, hey, 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 um, you know, is this really sort of, what kind of relationship are we getting into? And is this sustainable for us? But, um, you know, sort of the other third big peg, I guess, as you mentioned, um, sort of conflict with India, um, the the rise of Narendra Modi. Um, when you were there, obviously in 2006, the, the heydays of Musharraf at his peak and seeking, you know, the four-point solution to Kashmir, etc. Um, trying to understand again, uh, as somebody look from the outside looking in now and, and looking across at what's happening with India, um, the, the threat of conflict is always there since the revocation of Article 370. Pakistan and India have been sort of their rhetoric has at least been sharper than ever before. Um, going forward again, um, sort of given your experience and an understanding of that, that part of the world, um, do you, is this something that concerns you unduly or is this just more of Pakistan and India sniping at each other and eventually, you know, uh, nothing in terms of like a hot conflict breaking out, for example? Well, one of the things that really struck me when I was in Pakistan, as you said, the period when I was there, the relationship with India was actually, relatively speaking, pretty pretty good. You know, the, the uh, 
the, the Cargill War was a memory at that point. Even the confrontations after 2001 over the Indian Parliament tax and so on had pretty much passed over. And Musharraf and uh, Mamohan Singh had cricket diplomacy, if you remember, and so on. So things were pretty pretty warm during that period. And and I remember I had a lot of friends, uh, you know, places like Lahore and particularly in Lahore, people who would go across to India, uh, they had personal friendships there, but they also, even some people were, I remember there's a person we know who uh, runs a, a wedding planning business and he was going off to India and, uh, you know, doing, doing gigs over there. And it was like very encouraging, you know, and by the same token, in the conversations I had with a lot of my friends about the relationship between the two countries, I often felt that when it came to, you know, the two nation theory, this idea that theoretically underpins Pakistan's creation that Hindus and Muslims couldn't live, cannot abide each other, cannot live together peacefully in the same country, um, that, that there was a kind of a lot of admiration for Jinnah as a person, but I felt there was a certain amount of, you know, quite not exactly embarrassment, but people sort of brushed over that. And I don't think that they really, a lot of them really believed in the two nation theory. They thought that this was a mistake, you know, as an ideological underpinning. And in some of the conversations with these same people that I've had more recently, we're talking about what's going on in India, what's going on in Kashmir, uh, the discrimination against Muslims in India, the, uh, you know, the, uh, across a broad range of things, ideological, practical, People being, you know, cow. People being killed for driving cows around uh, parts of India, that kind of thing. Um, and I, you know, in, in those conversations, people are saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the two-nation theory wasn't entirely wrong, you know. Um, and it, you know, whether 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 that's right or not, I, I don't want to make a judgment. But I, I, I do, I do, I do think that you know, Narendra Modi or the the Indian government seems to really be going out of its way to try and prove. <laughs> prove, prove, you know, prove the founders, prove, you know, the people behind partition right. And I, I just find that dispiriting. So I think that, you know, to get to your question, I, I don't think that this is just another phase. It seems like this is a step change, certainly inside India. Um, you know, what it means for the relationship with Pakistan. You know, I think Pakistan has got other fish to fry as well. I don't think a, a, an all-out war in India would necessarily bring anything to Pakistan right now. Um, and of course, you know, very unpredictable effects. So I'm not sure that, that that would suit it. But, you know, it seems that the danger of something unpredictable happening and Pakistan-India history is littered with you know, unintended consequences, uh, military campaigns that started with one thing and ended in something very different. I mean, look at Operation Gibraltar in 1965, you know, or uh, Grand Slam um, uh, and so on. You know, 1971, there are so many episodes where people on either side of the line, and unfortunately often in Pakistan, took a gamble because they thought that they were knew what they were doing and it didn't work out. And so, uh, you know, I. I you look at what's going on in India and Kashmir, and you got to think that um, you know it's not maybe maybe it's in no one's interest to have a war, but that doesn't mean that conflict will not happen. Sure, you know, I mean, uh, I think you sort of touched on that. Like, was from my perspective, at least, or uh, some other friends who share this perspective, one of the more distressing things that's happened in between Pakistan and India over the last decade or so, and probably sort of you know this turning point might have been the Mumbai 
for taxes. Yeah, the two states have always fought and they've not gone long. And of course, there've been wars and it's a, it's a global flashpoint, et cetera. But at least the two populations on both sides of the water, you know, it was a well-known trope that when you put a Pakistani and Indian in a room together, they get along famously, like as though they're, you know, sort of, uh, they are neighbors. But, um, but, but what seems to have happened, I, I think, um, at least on the Indian side in the public, there seems to be this active, uh, aggressive, sort of almost a hatred towards Pakistan that has. And I, again, I don't know whether it's sort of emerging India, rising India, as it's become more powerful and, or others grown in, uh, in economic stature. Um, and on the Pakistani side, I think, as you rightly mentioned, since Narendra Modi, there's, there's been this question mark that, you know, hey, um, what's going on with these Indians over in India? I think that's from the perspective of a journalist, uh, it's, it's a little sort of distressing that as long as the two states were fighting, but the people of the two countries really, there was a rapport between them that you could rely or, or fall back on, um, that seems to have uh, disappeared and, and sort of regressed in recent years. And um, it's troubling. I, I don't know whether that's sort of in the long term going to be an even bigger problem. But um, so many more questions. Sorry, sorry, Declan, go on. And just to add on that, I mean, even if you look at another big change is in the cultural sphere, right? I mean, even through the, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s in, in Pakistan, people consumed Bollywood movies because they loved them, right? They got, even when Zia banned Indian movies in the movie theaters, people brought in VCRs famously and so on. Sure. Now, in recent years, you see even, you know, that cultural common point being weaponized on both sides as a way to get at the other country, right? I mean, in Indian movies now, the ISI uh, uh, character is like your favorite bad guy, right? I mean, always was like that, but it seems like it's really been stepped up in recent years. And of course, in Pakistan, the ISPR, which when I, the, that's the Inter-Services of Public Relations, the Army's press office, you know, when I arrived, um, it was, you know, the ISPR was a couple of prefabs in the Army headquarters in, uh, and a few offices, to be fair, in, in Rawalpindi. But, you know, they they interacted with journalists. They occasionally brought us on these, uh, you know, guided tours in the tribal belt and so on. But they had a very limited role. Now, as I understand it, you know, the ISPR uh, is engaged in movie production and making, you know, sponsoring its own movies that would tell a very different story about Indian provocateurs inside Pakistan. Um, you know, it's a little trivial as an example, but, you know, it seems, again, to, uh, to show if when you talk, I think you make an excellent point that even in bad times, there's been a lot of mutual solidarity and affection between Indians and Pakistanis that I've met on both sides. And it does seem that, uh, you know, in the politics of the moment, uh, uh, some of that at least is being lost or eroded. And, and that's, that's, that's sad. Yeah, you. yeah. I mean, for anyone who wants peace between the two countries, it's deeply worrying and troubling. Uh, but plenty more questions, Declan. Um, I'm going to read one of them out right now. Um, so it says, uh, there's no name here, but several times throughout the book, you discuss the enforced disappearances of several Pakistanis. Um, drawing from your ground experience, uh, what are some of the factors that allow, I'm going to say, the Pakistani state to do so? Uh, they use more specific terms there. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, your, your Balochistan coverage, et cetera, and going back to the early 2000s. So this issue of enforced disappearances, uh, missing persons, as we call them in Pakistan, um, is, is a 21st century phenomenon. I, I know it probably happened back in the 70s and maybe uh, in Balochistan back then too in other parts of the country. But it, it's, it's, it's sort of almost a defining feature, it seems, of, of current day Pakistan. So what, what do you think happened there or has happened? 
I, I think there's probably a couple of things. Well, you know, in, in broad terms, I mean, it's partly it's just very simply to state the obvious, an indicator of impunity. It's, it's about a security apparatus that doesn't answer to the law. And it doesn't answer to the uh, it doesn't answer to a political authority when it comes to these kind of matters. It doesn't really answer to the government, actually, or didn't when we were there. And so, you know, it is an outgrowth of the uh, the power or the, the 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 authority that the security forces, and particularly the, the ISI and the military, have accrued to themselves since the 1980s. I would say, you know, 70s and the 80s. So, you know, this was, it was it's, it's a power that has grown over the years, and it really only took this kind of dark, really dark turn, I think, you know, in the post 9-11 era. And again, I, to come back to the earlier point, you know, it was precipitated by the crisis in the relationship between the military and some of its former proxies. So, um, you know, if you recall, when the disappearances first came to light, it wasn't really Balochistan that was the big story. It was Islamists who are suspected Islamists who are being picked up as part of an American sponsored sweep actually for you know terrorism suspects after after 9-11. So you know, I, I think I think there was a, a crisis for Pakistan and in, in or for the security services in managing some of those relations. And because there was so little oversight they went for the shortcut to try and deal with them you know um the other factor and i don't want to i mean i think this is worth noting i'm not sure it was the driving factor but it's definitely worth noting is that of course this is the period when guantanamo bay was taking place and the example from the united states at that time was that you know ab abducting people rendering them to a place where they cannot be seen and they've got no due process um and treating them in a however you know torturing them of course and among other things at black sites um that this is something that states do um you know i'm not sure that the pakistani state needed that example to behave as it did but it certainly created an atmosphere at the time that this was behavior that states across the board from the ones which at least held themselves out to have the most lofty ideals to those which arguably the Pakistani state held themselves out to be the greatest pragmatists, um, you know, were were legitimately engaging in, and I think that was, I think that was, uh, you know, that was that was yeah. that was disturbing at that at, at that time. Yeah, no, that 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 segue is sort of neatly into another question I have right in front of me out here, and it, it concerns one of the sketches in your book, uh, but I think maybe you can speak about it more broadly. And the question is. Why was Colonel Imam so important to understanding the complex nature of Pakistan's relationships slash struggle with militant groups? And, you know, obviously, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, Pakistan has had tremendous success. I mean, when we were together in Islamabad in the you know, early 2010s, all the way to 2014, as you mentioned, when the APS school attack happened, it was a pretty horrific year. It's like you think thrice about it. In fact, when we went to the to Lahore to cover uh, the election at that time, you know, I, in the back of my mind, it was also like, do I want to be out in, in sort of a political procession or rally somewhere? Um, so great strides achieved or, or made, but yeah, just the, the question is sort of the complex nature of Pakistan's relationship with militant groups and how do you see it today? Knowing full well that there's been push, uh, you know, a large scale eradication, at least of the TTP. Well, just to go briefly to Colonel Imam, you know, he yeah. was the uh, it, you know, uh, 
he, he was this character who was a source of fascination for a lot of foreign journalists uh, at that time because he came, for better or for worse, he came to embody this idea of Pakistani double game. Uh, you know, in the late 2000s, you had Pervez Musharraf, who was hailed by George W. Bush as his best buddy. Pakistan was raking in, you know, billions of dollars in American assistance. Uh, and proclaiming itself to be, you know, ally in the in the, uh, the famous war on terror. Um, but at the same time, we saw the resurgence of the Taliban in Afghanistan, and uh, you know, the undoubted presence of the Taliban leaders in Quetta and surrounding areas, Kashin and these places. Um, and so, you know, I remember as a as a reporter for a Western media outlet, we spent a fair bit of time puzzling over how do you how do you reconcile these two things? And for better or for worse. Colonel Imam became, for a lot of people, I think, you know, at the very least, a symbol of that ambiguity. Trying to figure out was he, was he, was he, was he still active, and so on. And um, you know, just to briefly digress, he again was one of these people I met in Pakistan. And I can tell you, I've just done five years in Egypt, which is also a country, you know, where the military has a strong role and has some similar characteristics with Pakistan. But it was very hard to get access to people, frankly, from particularly from that milieu. It's a very closed place for foreigners to get access. And Colonel Imam was someone who, you know, I remember the first time I went to see him, he was giving an interview for a Pashto language TV station. And I met him afterwards. I buttonholed him. Next thing you know, I'm like back at his home and he's showing me, you know, his collection of war memorabilia on the wall. And he had a piece of the Berlin Wall there along with this inscription saying to, you know, he who cast the first blow. And, you know, just to step back from the politics of it, but just as a reporter and the, you know, the, um, the, 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 um, the ability to meet people like that in Pakistan and get inside what was going on was really at the heart of, um, you know, a lot of my reporting when I was there. And one of the reasons why in this book, I was hoping to try and get some of that across because in regular newspaper reports, they, you, yeah. as you know, you leave out a lot more than, than you say, you know? Um, when you look, you at get the... in trouble if you don't. But <laughs> um, but yeah, no, um, Declan. I mean, we've got a few minutes left, and a lot of questions out here. But I think I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. And I've seen a couple of questions out here about the circumstances of your exit from Pakistan. And one of the questioners wants to know when you were writing this book, were you able to travel back? I know you weren't. Um, and how difficult was that? So sort of you know, as 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 a sort of a signpost in Pakistan's turn away from a rather a freer media environment. Tell us a little bit more about you, the New York Times correspondent in Pakistan, suddenly being given 72 hours to leave. What happened yeah. there? Well, I, you know, I mean, the, the expulsion order was issued um, during the period of the, um, I'm sorry, what's the term? Transitional government? I'm trying to remember. When the, the, Interim the, government, the, caretaker government. We call them caretaker, caretaker government. governments, right? Yeah. So for anyone who's not aware, in, in Pakistan, when an election is about to be held, uh, the regular government steps down and there's a caretaker administration that takes over for a period of weeks in the run-up to the election. So the, the order that was issued against me was actually issued by the caretaker of interior minister uh, but really uh, i learned pretty quickly had come had come from the isi um and as i said you know we tried really hard to to find out 
I, I, we, you know, we, we, we made representations uh, at the level of the New York Times to the Prime Minister's office, Prime Minister Noah Sharif. I met some pretty senior people in the ISI in, in London, um, in, 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 you know, when, where I was effectively living for a couple of years afterwards. And, you know, they just did the classic thing, really, which is they, they would say, well, oh, you know, obviously a terrible misunderstanding it must be. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look into it and, uh, you know, come, come back to us. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure we can figure something out here. I'm sure we can, you know, get this, get this overturned and get you back. And of course, you know, I think 18 months, two years passed, and then it was pretty clear that there was going to be no going back. Um, I, I would love to go back, of course. I would love to go back in a personal capacity as well as a professional one. Um, I, uh, unfortunately, I can't, as I understand it, I'm still on something called a, a blacklist. Uh, uh, as one of the newspaper reports about it said, I'm category A blacklist, um, which I, suggest, I suspect means that, you know, my chances are pretty low. Um, but, you know, as I, I think, uh, you know, as everyone in Pakistan, there's a, you know, there's a security rationale for things, and then it gets locked into the bureaucracy. Um, and I think to get taken off one of these blacklists, you need sign off from multiple agencies inside the country. Uh, and, and you need to get off the blacklist, you need someone to sponsor that or some one, one, one part of the government to really champion your case. And unfortunately, since I've been out, you know, the, the Sharif government and certainly the Imran Khan government really haven't been, I mean, press freedom and Cyril, you know, you're the embodiment of this, press freedom has come under incredible, uh, has been threatened to a way that, you know, I, I haven't, I don't think Pakistan's seen in decades. And so the chances yeah. of anyone being interested in a case like mine seems, seems, seems low. You know, but I, I hope that's not I, going to be a problem. Situation. Yeah, I remember a bit of gallows humor when we were driving to the airport. I remember telling you that, well, at least the, the worst they can do to you is kick you out. And you know, fast forward a couple of years and I was on the ECL. <laughs> so um, there's that. Lots, lots of questions out here, Declan. Um, I'm going to try and cycle through. But before I ask another one from, I just want to know, I mean, you know, obviously we're sitting or I'm sitting here in DC and, and the people tuning in are, are you know, looking at the Pak-US relationship, of course. So I guess the question would be sort of as, as a drawdown nears in Afghanistan, um, why should the U.S. care about Pakistan and vice versa? Why should Pakistan care about the U.S.? Is there, is there any basis for a longer term relationship here that you see? Oh, oh, oh um, undoubtedly. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, certainly from the Pakistani perspective, there are even from, you know, we, we talked about the rising influence of China and it's and the, you know, how it has occupied at least some of the space that was previously occupied by the American relationship. But, you know, it cannot replace everything. And there are practical issues for the Pakistani military about the hardware they have, the F-16s and so on that are important. But to be honest, I think also there are still a significant number of people, even in the security establishment, who you know, uh, who, who value the relationship with the US, who recognize its importance. And I don't think that they want to throw that, even though they may want to hedge their bets, but I really don't think that they're willing to abandon that in any substantial way. Um, and then, you know, from the American side, I would say that if history, you know, history never repeats itself perfectly, but um, as the, uh, the, you know, as the Irish poet Seamus Heaney said, it does rhyme. And, 
you know, it seems to me when I was thinking about this book and the fact that many of the events I'm writing about are now firmly in the past, you know, they are uh, things that occurred in the late 2000s and early. And as you say, Cyril, things have changed in Pakistan. The Taliban insurgency has been beaten back. Um, you know, there are no longer, uh, there's no longer violence in the big cities like there was before. So things have moved on for sure. But I think it's also a safe bet to assume that, you know, the, the, the enduring issues of Pakistan and the potential for a huge for some sort of major and completely unforeseeable problem to blow up is still there and uh, you know if i if i were putting money on it i think you know there is certainly uh there, you know pakistan will be back in the news and pakistan will be a major or significant you know security concern of some sort uh in the in the in the future you know whether that's next year yeah. two years five years away and so you know only a fool really would try and pretend that um, you know, that it's gone away. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that one. I mean, again, we could keep going on for a long time, I'm sure. There's many more questions rolling in, but we just have a couple of more minutes left. I guess, um, like I said in the beginning, I, I, I regard you as a friend of Pakistan. Uh, your book itself shows uh, your, your keenness in trying to bring out something about the nicer side or the better side of Pakistan, the better angels, as they were. So just uh, maybe close on that a little bit. Tell us, I mean, you know, obviously the security issues dominate. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the neighborhood, inside Pakistan, to Pakistan, et cetera. But, um, you know, as, as somebody who covered Pakistan sensitively and with the sensitivity over the years, uh, just, you know, final thoughts on, on, on how do you feel about Pakistan? Fast forward seven I years. You know, the, I guess this book in a way was, this book was like a little bit of a reckoning for me with, uh, you know, my status as someone who had to leave. But also, of course, it just made me relive, uh, you know, those times. And those, that was a period of, you know, of great drama and all of that stuff we've been talking about. But, you know, within that, there were so many things about the, you know, I, I it brought me back to so many events that made me laugh, you know, quirky characters, you know, the kind of people that I chose to write about in this book are people really, I just think you'd struggle to find them in many other parts of the world. And, 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 and you know, so I, I guess I'm just left with the sense that I spent a, you know, a decade of my life covering this country and, you know, I, I left a, a part of me there. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I think this book for me was a way of of, of dealing with that. Um, and I, I really do hope that I find a way to go back because for me, um, you know, it, it it's fascinating as an intellectual puzzle um, and as a as as an important corner of the world. Um, but it's also a place that, for all of its problems, has got you know so much potential, so many inspiring people actually. And I would love to be a reporter who could tell the story that in the future some of those people will get a chance to really shape the destiny of the country and to have a bigger influence on it than they might have right now. Sure, I mean just by the sheer volume of questions coming in it looks like you have, still have a lot of fans in Pakistan and here in the US too so I wish you best of luck with the book Declan, uh, plenty of sales and uh, unfortunately I think we're gonna have to sign off right now but um, great chatting today and let's hope that one day we can have a meal in a Chinese restaurant in Islamabad again soon. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.